This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. If you don't mind, I'm going to pull from a, a movie. Not a walk on. But The Princess Bride, there's a scene where Wesley is talking to his, to his love, Buttercup. And he's telling her, about, telling her about his experience with the Dread Pirate Roberts. And every evening, the Dread Pirate Roberts would say, Good night, Wesley. Good work. Sleep well. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. I kind of think I can relate to that. It's been good. You have listened well. I will most likely finish this study tonight. But you will sleep well, uh, and maybe during it. Uh, But uh, I hope to finish this tonight. That is my goal on this topic, because I really would like to get to where we talk about about miracles, and we talk about the resurrection. And we'll do that, Lord willing, next week. But again, it'll be a miracle uh, if we get there. So, uh, uh, but we're going to finish this, the reliability of Scripture, this evening, and then move in. We won't, get, we won't really be able to talk completely about miracles and the resurrection in full, but uh, I think we'll give a good overview. And uh, I really want to get to the definition of miracles, because I think that's an important definition to have, and I think uh, it will help us. So let's get into this tonight. So we are on the unity of message here from the Bible. If you recall, I had said that uh, as Christian apologists, we, how do we explain why we believe the Bible is true? And uh, uh, let me get down to where we're at, where we should be. Um, give me one second here. Okay. All right. How do we, as Christians, how do we explain why we believe the Bible is true? The New Testament documents are historically reliable and accurate, was the first thing I had mentioned. And then I had said that uh, it's accurate and it's historically reliable and and incredible because of the unity of message. Uh, The unity of message. Despite the fact that it was written by many different men over 1,500 years, there isn't a single place where a biblical author disagrees with another biblical author. Some scholars suggest that much of its history and prophecy were written years after the events which they claim to be contemporaries of. They could claim that prophecies and histories were rewritten hundreds of years later to support a particular agenda, but if that were true, you would expect these revisionist historians to contradict some of what had been written in or discovered about the past, but nowhere in the Bible do you find this type of disagreement. The Bible is united in teaching its own, its, its own authority. Now, despite the fact that it was written by so many authors, when Moses set out, for example, writing the first book of the Bible, he set an enormous precedent as he claimed divine authority for his writings. Can you imagine the challenge it would have been to be consistent with those writings 1,500 years later had the entire Bible not been authored ultimately by God. If you just think about it, the Bible in and of itself, the fact that it's accurate 
and, and even on just face value, doesn't have contradictions. And, and, I, and don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying if you really looked into it, you'd find them. I am saying that if you just did a cursory look over the Bible, you'd say, wow, this, is, this seems pretty accurate. And that's a miracle. The unity of the Bible's message is undeniable. You may have heard some say that the, Bible, that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment while the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. But I would point out that the Bible itself doesn't, even, doesn't support this. You cannot, read God, you cannot read God's tender descriptions of his love for his people in the prophets or the Pentateuch and then read Jesus' descriptions of judgment and maintain that opinion. There's a unified message. It isn't as if God changed when, uh, when Jesus came and all of a sudden he had a new message of grace. You find grace through the entire Old Testament. And I would also say that the judgments, that Jesus also spoke of judgment. And so there isn't as if there's these two different gospel or two different words of God or, or personas that God has. The Bible all points to one man, Jesus. The same man whom the prophets foretold is the same man who revolutionized history, Jesus. The testimony of Scripture to Christ over so many centuries is quite remarkable. John Frame, a biblical theologian, he said it this way. An incredible rich array of symbols, types, prophecies, events, and poetic depictions converge inevitably and powerfully on Jesus Christ who, to most of the biblical writers, was to come centuries later. So we see that there is a unity of message throughout the entire Bible. But we also see that there is internal consistency. Internal consistency. If the Bible is reliable and true, and it is, it should be internally consistent. And we should find that the Bible does not contradict itself. You, have made, you may have heard people make this claim. In the Old Testament, populations of armies are sometimes estimated differently in different places. If you read through, you'll find that there are different numbers. Or maybe you'll hear someone make this argument about consistency. Well, in one passage in Exodus says that God parted the Red Sea, but another says in Exodus it was the wind. Some would argue about the consistency of the scriptures when they would say, well, the chronological order of Jesus' life is not the same way in any, of the two in any two of the Gospels. Or someone might argue, one account of the resurrection says that the women who went to the tomb saw two angels. Another says there was only one. So are these contradictions? These can all be answered easily by keeping some guidelines such as the following in mind. So when you hear these arguments, here's some guidelines to go by. Remember the thing I said about numbers and populations of armies? Ancient histories rarely claimed exact numbers. And symbolic numbers are sometimes used in relating symbolic events. Scripture is always true, but it is not always precise. And I don't think it has to be at least where it doesn't claim to be. Can I give you an illustration of this, of true and precise? 
God sits on the circle of the earth. There is a flat earth. Well, is it true or is it precise? You say, well, what do you mean? What are you saying? I'm saying that there are many, and it's becoming more and more popular, about flat earth theory. You say, what? There is? I thought we put that one to rest a long time ago. <laughs> it's growing again. It's because it grows as fast as social media lets it. How about this one? Joshua looked and he said to the sun, stand still. Did the sun stand still? Obviously, it's moving. And so, does the earth move around the sun, or does the sun move around the earth? The Bible uses poetic language. And I think we need to be very careful when it comes to interpretation of the Scriptures, where when we get to passages in, in the poet, poetic books, and we'll say, well, that's poetic language. It doesn't have to be precise. It's poetic. And then we go to other places and say, well, if these numbers disagree, they have to be precise. Why do we say one has to be precise and not the other one? One is poetry and the other one... I just, I, my point is that when it comes to certain things in the Bible, don't get so tied up and say, well, this has to be... If it doesn't claim to be precise, don't claim it for it. But here's an interesting thing. You say, well, what about in Genesis? There's no claim of the Bible to be precisely seven days of creation, or six days of 24, literal 24 hours of creation. There is actually. And this is where I would encourage you, if you ever have the desire to learn the original languages, go for it. Now, you can trust your Bible in English. You don't have to know Hebrew. But if you did know the Hebrew word for day, you would understand how precise that actually is for 24 hours, literal hours. So where the Bible is precise, be precise. So Old Testament populations of armies are sometimes estimated differently in different places. Well, ancient histories rarely claimed exact numbers, and symbolic numbers are sometimes used in relating symbolic events. Scripture is always true, not always precise, at least where it doesn't claim to be. The first and second causes... For example, one passage in Exodus says that God parted the Red Sea, another says it was a wind, or the chronological order of Jesus' life is not the same in any of the two of the Gospels. These do not exclude one another. God parted the Red Sea with a wind. They don't, they're not exclusive. Don't hold the Bible to what it doesn't claim. Only Luke claims something of a chronological accuracy in Luke chapter 1, verse 3. Recognize also then that different accounts do not imply error. Remember the ladies who saw the angels at the tomb? Is it possible perhaps one woman did see two angels while the other only saw one? Remember to always read in the context. I think context is very important. I may have talked about this already, but I'll bring it up again because I think it applies here. On the ship, I've had a conversation, a continuing conversation with a bosun's mate uh, who's very intelligent. 
even though he's a bosun, no, I'm just kidding. So I, I've had a conversation with a bosun's mate, and, uh, and he talks about, well, you don't believe the Bible, take the Bible literally, do you? And I said, I do. I take it literally within the context it was written. And I think that's very important. And it goes back to what I was saying about, for example, the, the sun moving. And, and it's okay to, to look at it through the author's perspective and understand it in that way. And so, yes, you can take the Bible literally. And you should. The Bible is true. But understand the context. Read within the context. We could spend weeks going through all the apparent contradictions that people would point out. But there have been books written to help us out with these. A good example of this is Norman Geisler's when critics, his book called When Critics Ask. But that being said, if there are gaping contra- contradictions that could not be easily explained or that kept me up at night, I think, honestly, I would not stand up here tonight if there were so many contradictions that I couldn't get around it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to stand up here Why? Because just knowing me, who I am, my personality, I want to know the truth. I trust you do too. You want to know the truth. As I've mentioned before, books like this in no way underpin Christian faith. Conversely, it's the experience of Christians that the further they explore God's word, you don't have to, I said Norman Geisler's book, it's a good book, but you don't have to go to that. You can explore God's word and learn from it. And the more you learn from God's word, the more you will trust him. Ultimately, our trust is in the truthfulness and reliability of the Bible is based on Jesus Christ and his view of it, rather than my ability or inability to find or explain any supposed contradictions. My point is, you can... Just go into the Bible and look for yourself. And my father used to always say when people say, well, there's contradictions in the Bible. Good, show me. Find them. Find them. I think what I've said, you know, the the ones that people kind of just gloss over, I think we can easily explain away. But I don't think there's any contradiction in there that we would just sit around and just really try to, wow, I just don't understand this. The Bible has an internal consistency to it. It has an internal consistency, and it also has an external consistency. Before I move to external consistency, the internal consistency of the Bible also, we can believe the Bible because it says it's true. It does. Now, have you ever thought about that? Is that circular reason? Why do you believe the Bible to be true? Because the Bible says it's true. Why do you believe what it says is true? Because it says it is. And we could just go in circles. But here's, a, here's something I think we need to at least just maybe for a few seconds here. Just do a, a mental exercise and, and try to peel that back. If we can't take the Bible's own testament, testimony to be true... then can we believe anything? Let me explain where I'm going with this. How many of you know, you don't have to tell you who they are, but how many of you know someone that you trust? You trust that person. 
What they say, you trust. Now, most of you are probably thinking, no, I could tell, let's do the ones I don't trust. Easy. That's easier. <laughs> but you know someone you, that is trust. How, how do you know that you trust them? Experience. They haven't lied to you. They haven't misled you. Your experience is that, that you can trust them. What about, what do we know about God? Can he be trusted? Yes. Does God lie? No, he does not lie. We know he doesn't lie. Yes, the Bible tells us he doesn't lie. But the very definition of God and what we defined weeks ago would tell us that God, in, the definition of God is someone who, truth and veracity is a definition of God. So God, by definition, cannot lie. So if God, by definition, cannot lie, can you trust what he says? Yes. He bears testimony to himself. And that's very important. I don't get caught up and say, well, the Bible tells me to, that it's true, therefore I believe it's true. This is the word of God. In fact, it would be a contradiction in and of its own definition if I were to go down the road and say, well, if the Bible doesn't say it's true, it has to say it's true because it's God's very word and God cannot lie. In fact, for God to never claim truth and veracity would be a lie. And he can't do that. He can do nothing else but claim his own truth. Because he is truth. I hope I haven't confused you, but my point is this. This isn't just, well, the Bible just bears witness to itself. No, the Bible is the very word of God, and, he bear, and the word bears witness to God who is true and cannot lie. And you can trust because it doesn't lie. You can always trust someone who doesn't lie. And if he said it, you can trust it because he is God and he cannot lie. So there's this internal consistency. I don't have a hard time saying, well, I, I don't know if I, I need to... I'll make one more point, and then we'll move on. I, if we say, well, I, I need some outside source to really kind of build this up. If you need an outside source to bear witness to the Bible, what then becomes your authority? The outside source does. And that then becomes what we trust. This does not need an outside source. If, and now, there are outside sources, but we don't rely on them. We consider them. We are thankful for them. There are others, who, there are others just like you and me who are human, and they have written books, and they attest to this, and we're thankful for that, and we may be encouraged by that. But at the end of the day, I don't trust the Bible because theologians like Norman Geisler or Albert Moeller or others have said, hey, you need to, this is the word of God. I appreciate that, but I trust it because God said it's the word of God. And he's the ultimate authority, and he cannot lie. Even tonight, as you sit here and you look at notes uh, that I give you, you don't have to say, and you won't, but you don't have to say, well, Tavis Long said that it's, it's worth trusting, so I think I will. 
I'm not the authority. It bears witness to itself because this is the very word of God. Internal consistency. It will be consistent. But external consistency. At the end of the 19th century, it became much more in vogue to use, and maybe you've heard this, archaeological evidence to supposedly disprove the historical accounts of the Bible. Well, let's go dig things up and find out why the Bible is inaccurate. This happened so much that if you examine commentaries from that era, many Christian scholars actually themselves seem to wonder if the Bible's historical accounts could ever be proved. But over the last hundred years, the veracity and reliability of the Bible has been, has been vindicated again and again and again as more evidence has been brought to bear. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to point you to a great resource in Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and the new evidence that demands a verdict, a ready defense. Let me read to you a representative example. During the excavation of Jericho in the 1930s, archaeologist Garstang found something so startling that a statement of what was found was prepared and signed by himself and two other members of the team. In reference to these findings, Garstang says, As to the main fact, then, there remains no doubt. The walls of Jericho fell outward so completely that the attackers would be able to clamber up and over their ruins into the city. Why so unusual? Because the walls of the cities do not fall outwards. They fall inwards. And yet in Joshua 6.20 we read, The walls fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. And when they excavated Jericho, that's what they found. The walls laying down flat. Now that's external consistency. We don't need to excavate Jericho to believe the Bible. But isn't it comforting to know that you're not going to go find archaeology that contradicts the Bible because the Bible is true? And it will continue to be true. Archaeology does not prove scriptures are the inspired and errant word of God, but no archaeological discovery has disproved the historical veracity and reliability of the text of the New or Old Testament. Unity of message, internal consistency, external consistency. You're not going to find external uh, testimony that, that will disprove the Bible. Now, people will make things up, but as you look at it, you won't find things that will disprove it. It may not necessarily prove it, but it will not disprove it. So, we move on. Jesus is, well, the New Testament documents are historically reliable and credible. Jesus' character is shown as trustworthy. Now, this is very important. If Christians can convince someone that the Bible is as generally reliable as other historical documents then the next step is to help them see what historical testimony says about the character of Jesus. If the scriptures are basically unreliable, then there would be no reason to attach any significance to this Jesus of Nazareth. The historically reliable Bible teaches a historically real Jesus. And the Bible does not teach Jesus was merely a good teacher. In the Gospel accounts, Jesus makes prophecies not only of the future events such as the destruction of Jerusalem, but he also talks about himself and his own work. If he was a true prophet, then all his teachings must be taken seriously. 
In his famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis argues Jesus was either a fraud, a liar, he was crazy, a lunatic, or he was God himself, he was Lord. He makes this statement, let me quote it for you. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being just a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And I end the quote. This may be a familiar menu of apologetic choices to some of you. You've probably heard this before. But the explanation has endured for good reason. Jesus could only have been a liar. He was not who he said he was. A lunatic. He was not who he thought he was. Or Lord. He was who he said he was. I would add, though, a fourth. Some would say he was just a legend. Some people assert the historical Jesus never existed. That he was a legend. But there is so much historical and archaeological evidence to support his existence that every reputable historian agrees he existed. You would have to say if he was a legend that the man, the person, Jesus, never walked this earth at all. But we have too much to document his existence. So if you have his existence and we start there that he existed, then we have to say, what did he, we have to wrestle with, well, what did he say about himself? If Jesus were a liar, why would he die for his claim when he could easily have avoided such a cruel death with a few choice words? And if he were a lunatic, how did he engage in such intelligent debates? If he was crazy, then why did the, 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 uh, the priest and the, and the scribes, when he was 12 years old, marvel at his doctrine? Why did he engage in such intelligent debates with his opponents or handle the stress of his betrayal and crucifixion while continuing to show a deep love for his antagonists? Just know the human condition, because he was human. He was 100% God, and he was 100% man. And if you know the human condition, you cannot die on a, on a man on a, on a cross as a human and still have that love and, 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 and care and mercy to those who, who are putting you to death and be a lunatic. It doesn't compute. Christ said he was Lord and God. The evidence supports that claim. So we establish first the historical reliability of the Bible. And then we see that Jesus has trustworthy character. And so from here we ask, what did Jesus teach about the Scriptures? Did he consider them authoritative? Well, yes, Jesus claimed that the Old and New Testament books were the Word of God. Remember, we established we can trust the Word of God, but we look and Jesus is, is trustworthy and he made claims, and, 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 if, he was, and if, he, if we could trust Jesus, let's see what he has to say about the Word of God. What did he say about the Old Testament? Jesus treated the Old Testament as God's inspired, infallible, inerrant Word. Let me point out a few examples. 
In some places, we see Jesus claiming that the entire Old Testament is trustworthy. For example, in John 10, 34, Jesus notes that Scripture cannot be broken. Many times we see Jesus in his arguments by quote, ends his argument by quoting Scripture. As far as he was concerned, what Scripture said was the end of the matter. In one case, Jesus even argues from the tense of a verb. That's in Matthew chapter 22. He clearly understands that each and every word was authoritative, not just the themes throughout the Bible. Jesus clearly assumes that what is prophesied in the Old Testament must be fulfilled, specifically concerning himself. That is particularly evident in the book of Matthew. And Jesus demands that others recognize that Scripture is fulfilled in him. Finally, Jesus establishes a pattern in Matthew 19 that, it, that is repeated in the rest of the Gospels when, his interchange, when he interchanges the phrases, the Scriptures say with God says. The Old Testament for Jesus is not merely a record of the words of God. It is the Word of God. So if we believe in Jesus then we ought to treat the Old Testament as he did, as the authoritative word of God. And I think that's a lot of problem that people have, is they want to say, I believe Jesus. I trust Jesus. I believe that Jesus lived and existed. Well, was he trustworthy? And we say he was. But if you're going to say Jesus is trustworthy, then you have to believe what he said. And what he said about the word of God in the Old Testament was that it was the word of God. So it's not as if in 2021 we're just holding on tightly to say, Lord, just, we, we just trust you that, this, that, that we have your word. We have Jesus who testified to the fact that it was the word of God. But what about the New Testament? Jesus himself laid the foundation for the New Testament. We talked about the Old Testament. You say, thanks, yeah, I got it. The, Jesus testified to the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Did you know that the New Testament was written in its entirety after Jesus died? But he laid the foundation for the New Testament. He taught that his teaching was to be viewed as the authoritative words of God. Let me just go back. Why do I say the entire New Testament was written after? When, when did the New Testament start? You're giving me years, but what event? You say, well, there's this white page between... Malachi, or Malachi, those of you who think he was an Italian prophet, uh, and uh, Malachi and Matthew, there's a white page, and it says on that page, New Testament. So that's where it starts. You ha can't have the New Testament until you have the death of the testator, or testator, right? He ushered in the New Testament with his death. So when he died... The New Testament starts. So everything you have up until his death is under the old covenant. In fact, there's a whole class that could be taught on that, and it would be fascinating. So everything happened in the New Testament, and then as it was written down was after his death. Of course, he rose again. But he taught that his teachings was to be viewed as the authoritative word of God. In other words, so what he was teaching in what we call the New Testament, the Gospels, what he taught was he considered what he was saying to be the word of God. In John seven sixteen, he says, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. 
In Matthew 24, 35, Mark 13, 31, and Luke 21, 33, if you're writing these down, I'm sorry, you're going to go fast. Jesus is recorded as saying, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. And the crowds noticed this aspect of Jesus' teaching. The first reaction we see recorded after the Sermon on the Mount is that the people were amazed because Jesus has taught as one having authority. Matthew 7, 9, 29. Jesus not only gives us reason to believe in the truth of his own words, but also in the words of his disciples. He told them that during times of persecution, listen to this, Matthew chapter 10, verse 19 through 20. When they deliver you up, Take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak, for it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Jesus told them in John 14, 26, that the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance all that he had taught them. And he told them later that the Spirit would continue to teach them with his own authority even after he had departed, John 16, 12 through 13. Finally, after his resurrection, Jesus declared that his disciples would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them so that they might be his witnesses, Acts 1.8. The New Testament, the New Testament was the word of God. So, as we look, as we continue on here and we look at as we look at this, the new t- he told I'm sorry, I'm getting back to my place here. My iPad just shut off, so I just restarted it. Finally, after his resurrection, Jesus declared that his disciples would receive power when the Holy Spirit came on, so they'd be his witnesses. The New Testament writers understood this authority that had been given to them, and they do not hesitate to cite it. 1 Corinthians 2.13, Galatians 1, 6-12. Paul, for example, writes this in 1 Corinthians 14.36-38. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. The things, this is Paul, that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. There are even two places where New Testament writers cite other New Testament writings as Scripture. Paul does this with the Gospel of Luke in 1 Timothy 5.18. Peter does this with the writings of Paul in 2 Peter 3.15-16. They testify to each other. The church, appears to have very, have, the church appears to have very early on accepted without question the authority of the writings of the New Testament, leaving other writings in an entirely different category. In fact, with the possible exception of 2 Peter and Jude, the New Testament canon as we have it today was universally recognized by the church by the 2nd century at the latest. It wasn't for another 200 years that an official definition of the canon was deemed necessary. So in summary, if we believe Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, then we must accept His view of Scripture. And that would lead us to understand the entire Bible as not just being important, but it is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. But what about those who would say, but, but, but what about this? Let's look at some rebuttals to common problems with the Bible, and we'll be done. 
while the purpose of this lesson has been to give you a framework for the reliability of the Scripture, let's tackle a few common problems that people raise as objections to the Bible's veracity and reliability. These quick rebuttals are not full answers. They're launching pads for engaging in a conversation. So let's look at our first one. The Bible is full of myths. Have you ever heard that? Anybody tell you that? I, I'm going to be honest with you as we look at some of these. This, these come from a perspective that even 10, 5, 10 years ago may have been a legitimate perspective some people had. I have found, at least in my line of work in the Navy, that we have an increasingly, increasingly uh, illiterate, biblically illiterate population. In other words, you may say, no one's ever said the Bible is full of myths because no one has ever cracked open the Bible. I find that there's times when I'll mention stories that I grew up hearing. And it's as if we're two ships passing in the night and they have no clue what I'm talking about. They've never heard of David and Goliath. They don't know about Jonah and a whale. So I can't even start with the myth of Jonah and the whale when they're like, that's a story? They've never heard it. But there are those, I would say like five, ten years ago, there were times when I could have those conversations. But we're not, there, the, the Bible is not even a passing thought. But let's look at this. The Bible is full of myth. What's the charge? The charge is that miracles, parallel accounts of the flood, and similarities uh, are similarities with the Greek gods. You know, you take the flood, for example. How could a flood cover the entire earth? And in fact, you can even go back into secular history, and you can look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, the oldest known book to mankind, humanity. The oldest. I mean, it is the first book that we have on record as ever being written. And there's this story in the Epic of Gilgamesh of this man who built a boat. So obviously the story of Noah and the Ark in the Bible is just a myth akin to those of the, of, of, of the ancient world. Or maybe it's just uh, these, these, I, this idea of miracles. Or, or like take for Jonah, for example. Really, that, I mean, that's a neat story to teach a nice lesson to kids, just like Aesop's fables. The Bible's full of myths. Well, how do you respond to that? Well, I think there is a way to respond to that. And here is the rebuttal. The Bible is not written in mythical literary style. You're claiming too much when you're saying, hey, that's just like those ancient myths. No, there is actually mythological literature out there. The Bible doesn't, isn't even written in that style as compared to other ancient literature. So what you're doing is you're making a claim that uh, uh, literists would not even make that claim because it is a completely different style. Now you say, that, I, they, they're not going to buy that. They, don't, they haven't studied ancient literature. Uh, they haven't studied the mythologies and all that. Then don't make the claim unless you've studied it out. Don't claim that the Bible is something when you're not even an authority. As a mythologist, it may not sit right with you. And that's like Thomas Jefferson. It didn't sit right with Thomas Jefferson, so he said, I'll just take a knife and cut all that stuff out. 
And if you have a, if you ever seen it, I've seen the Bible at a museum of Thomas Jefferson's Bible that he took all the miracle, miracles and he just cut them out with a knife. He just took them out. Well, that wasn't intellectually honest of him either, because Jesus said other things that were definitely miraculous. And if, uh, and one of being the resurrection. And if he took, when he takes that out, everything crumbles. You don't have a Bible. So the Bible is full of myths, but it's really not. It may be full of stuff you may not understand, but it's not mythological. What about this one? The Bible conflicts with science. Well, this was probably written like a year or two ago. Everything conflicts with science now, right? Uh, Science is its own God. Bible conflicts with science. This is perhaps one of the greatest challenges of the 20th century, the Scopes monkey trial there uh, about whether or not to teach uh, uh, evolution in the schools. But here's a response to this. The Bible describes nature from a phenomenological perspective. That is, the world of nature is described as it appears to the naked eye. So when Joshua says, sun stands still, and we look at that and we say, see, Joshua He didn't understand. The Bible can't be trusted because it conflicts with science. Well, that was the perspective. And there's phenomenological, phenomenal language that is used in the Bible. Furthermore, the scientific method is unable, think of it this way. When people say the Bible conflicts with science, the scientific method, it requires examination. And if you look at the scientific method, you have to examine, you theorize, you examine, you experiment, and you try to recreate. The scientific method is unable to examine any historical claim because it cannot observe it. Think about what I just said. You cannot observe history. You think you're observing it right now. You're not. You're observing right now. Let's observe history. We can't. Now, we know history through experience. I know two minutes ago because I experienced two minutes ago, but I cannot observe two minutes ago. I didn't observe two minutes ago two minutes ago. I observed that now. These are, these are, this is... To me, this is fascinating. This is why when people talk about science, they throw that term around, and they don't understand the definition of science. Science is observable. The very word science means knowledge. That's what the word science means. That's why in, uh, we have it in several of our words. Conscience has the word science in it. Here's, a new, here's one, maybe not new, but here's, an, here's a great one, prescience. You say, well... What is that? Pre-science, pre-knowledge, that's the doctrines of, uh, that people teach on, on uh, 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 it's Calvinism. It's, it's uh, to be foreordained, either to have, that, have, that Jesus knew, or God knows who will accept him and who will not. And it leads into the doctrines of, of, of what people call the doctrines of grace, which I think is also a misnomer. But the point is, science has to be observable. So when people say the Bible conflicts with science, did you observe what the Bible says? No, what you're asking for me is to believe you over the book. 
over this. You're asking for me to believe you and not this. Now, now, now if that's where we're going to go, that's, that, that, be honest. Let's be intellectually honest and say, you're asking for me to make you the authority. How do I know I can trust you? I can know I can trust this based on a whole lot more than just I think it. You know what people say, the Bible says it, and I believe it. That settles it. Well, the Bible says it. You can believe it if you want. It's already settled. So the Bible conflicts with science. Most of what we do can't be observed. History is one of those things. That's why there's so many different people who disagree about what happened in history. There's actually one of my favorite classes in seminary was on this topic of how do we know what happened in history? And there's really two types of history. And, uh, and, and, they, and it became popular in the 20th century amongst theologians as they looked at, well, how do we study history? Now, here are just a couple words I want to share with you. Where do we get our word, English word, history? History. It's German. It comes out of the German history. The Germans have two words for history. History and Geschichte. You say, what in the world does that mean? They come at two different perspectives. History is what happened. We don't ever know what actually happened. Why? Because we can't observe it. Geschichte is what we think happened. The interpretation of the events, the story. So anytime you open up a history book, you are reading it from the perspective of the historian. You are reading from a perspective in this when you open the Bible. Now, where I don't think people, when it comes to the apologetics of the Bible, you're looking at it from an omniscient perspective. Because the omnipotent, omniscient God wrote it. So, I don't find when people say the Bible conflicts with science, well, you can't observe history. So, history is not a science. And that's why I majored it in, in, in college, because I did not like science. Uh, and so, uh, but uh, it does, it, it, we're, we're talking about two different things. We have to define our terms. Okay, so let's move on. A fun, another rebuttal. Well, let's look at the problem. The Bible is full of contradiction. We talked about this already, but let's, let's just revisit it real quickly again. The Bible is full of contradictions. Just respond with, like what? Show me. Yeah. How do you know? Have you read it? I dare you to read it. So many people have a testimony. My dad being one of them, who said, I'm going to read it to find the contradictions. And he got saved. The Bible is powerful. The Word of God is powerful. Yes, C.S. Lewis was another one. C.S. Lewis said, I'm, he was an atheist. He said, I'm going, to, I'm going to test it, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to disprove it. And that brought him to theism. And intellectually, as he read, he, he was a theist, and he said, I, I admit there's a God. But he said, intellectually, you can't, logically, you can't stop there. Because of what he read in the Bible, if he said, if there's a God and he is true, then what he said is true, and he said he had a son. 
And that's how he became a Christian. So ask, how do you know? Have you read it? There are some divergent accounts, and writers do describe similar things from different perspectives. However, under close scrutiny, these passages are complementary, not contradictory. Be nice about it, but ask them, have you read it? I'd encourage you to read it. In fact, I, I try to do the same thing, and you've got to be careful with this. Someone will come to me and they'll say, oh, chaplain, I have read this book, and you've got to read this book. It just changed my life. And before I look at them and say, that book is the worst book ever, you do not need to read that, it's theologically inaccurate, I do, I'll read the book. Now, you've got to be careful, because some of the literature out there is not worth reading. But there are some theological works out there that I've had Marines and sailors come to me and say, Chaplain, you've got to read The Shack. And I labored through it. It was a good story, but it was theologically inaccurate. But I encourage them, read this. If you think this is wrong... Show, read it. Show me. Let me give you one last rebuttal. Here's the problem. The Bible is historically inaccurate. Again, we briefly talked about this. When new historical information comes to light, it detracts rather than lends credibility to the Bible. And the more we study, the more we find the Bible isn't true. Well, here, respond with, really? Give me an example. Historians have said that the Bible is one of the most historically accurate texts of antiquity. The problem with most historians is not the history that's in, in the Bible. It's the miracles and the phenomenal events that are in the Bibles that, that they have problems with. They don't have a problem. You can look, they'll look and say, yeah, there was a people called the, the nation of Israel who had a mass exodus at one point from Egypt. And there's even a time in Egypt's history where they talk about being plagued. They don't discount the history and say, well, that didn't happen. What they'll do, and this kind of leads us into next week, they'll say, well, those weren't really miracles that happened in the plagues. They were just phenomenal events in nature, and we can explain them away, but they never explain away the event. They, don't, they say, we can't. There's too much. There's too much history there. There's too much uh, evidence that says it happened. There, there's evidence that, that there was a King David. There's evidence that there was a Moses. There was a Joshua. There's evidence that there were cities like Jericho. We still have Jerusalem. There's, there's evidence that there was a Damascus. There's evidence all throughout that, that there are these places that what the Bible talks about happened, that there were empires that rose and fell that the Bible talks about. So when people say, well, the Bible is historically inaccurate, really, what, what is it that is inaccurate? It's one of the most historically accurate texts of antiquity. So in conclusion, as Christians, we finally surrender to the truth of God's revelation in the Bible and in history through Jesus it's not our own reason. Yeah, we can say there's outside evidence and there's archaeology and all this logically points that the Bible is true, but you will still not believe it if you do not believe Jesus. And we should not be afraid to use the Bible as we explain our worldview to unbelievers and argue for the veracity and reliability of faith in Jesus. 
So here are a few things to keep in mind as we're done. If questions come, to mo- come up that you can't answer, remember that there are answers to be found. It's okay to say, hey, that's a great question. Let me check on it, and I'll get the best answer for you. Because people are going to attack the Word of God. And they're going to try to trip you up, and they're going to say, well, what about this? Or what about... It's okay to say, let me study it. Let me go find out. Don't assume that your non-Christian friend will accept the Bible as authoritative. Honestly, if they would accept this Bible as authoritative, then they would, they would do what it says, and they would accept him. So don't, be, don't, don't assume that they're just going to accept it. Don't argue as if the Bible is not authoritative. As you describe your worldview, you are entitled to argue by your own rules, and that includes the authority of the Bible. I start when in a conversation. For example, go back to this bosun's mate when he says, you don't believe the Bible, you do... And, uh, and, and, and I say, yes, I do. And he says, well, why? That doesn't matter why to you. But uh, we could talk about it. But then he went in to tell me why it wasn't true. Well, he was building his own rules for the conversation. And I didn't have to play by his rules. I didn't have to because he doesn't believe it. Well, then I, I guess I can't. You have as much right to the truth. And you should claim it. Open the Bible, though, with those that you are talking with. My dad used to say, there's a lot of messages that are preached out there. Some preach about the Bible. Some preach from the Bible. The best ones preach the Bible. As you're witnessing and talking to someone, open the Bible. Talk to them about it. It is the Word of God, and it is powerful for explaining human nature and the common experience that we have. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. When you read your Bible, read it with confidence. God has spoken that He has revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures, and we read the same Bible that was handed down by the first apostles of of our church. What you have in your hands that Paul, as an instrument under divine inspiration, wrote is the very word of God. The Bible is reliable. Lord willing, next week we'll talk about the resurrection and miracles. And we may have to really pare it down to just miracles and resurrection, but we will, we'll, we'll finish up next week. Any questions before I close in prayer? Any thoughts? Any arguments? Disagreements? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to be reminded that your Bible, the Word of God that we hold in our hands, is powerful and it's reliable. Father, I'm reminded also, though, that over the years, over the centuries, there were not those who were blessed to have a Bible readily available. And people bled and died to preserve it. And you worked through those martyrs. Father, may we cherish the word that we have. Father, we can now have Bibles in our house, but Father, we can also pull it up on tablets and phones It truly is at our fingertips. So to whom much is given, much is required.
And I pray that we would be faithful to it. And we would take the Word of God, that we also learn from the Word of God, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to that. Give us strength to do it. Help us to do it. For we do it for your honor and for your glory. And we do it for the sake of Jesus Christ, who died for us. And it's in whose name we pray. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757 488 3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's Word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.